Hi, I'm Michael Turton, and I'm here today with Michael Fahey, who is a lawyer with Winkler Partners here in Taipei, and has been involved with Things Taiwan now since the late 1980s, and is one of the most knowledgeable and intelligent and well-informed people on Taiwan that I know. And it's a real pleasure to have you on the show today, Michael. Well, thank you for the very kind introduction, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> it's a shame that everyone in our generation is named Michael. We have to go back and sue our parents or something. <laughs> so you first came to Taiwan when? In 1988? In 1988, uh, six months after martial law had been lifted. Oh, yeah. And I came here, uh, I took a a year off from college where I was studying Chinese, not very successfully. <laughs> and at that time, studying in China was prohibitively expensive, but I had heard from other people who had were studying Chinese that you could come to Taiwan and teach English and make enough money to study Chinese at the same time. Uh, so I took the plunge and came and more or less did that uh, for six months here in Taiwan and then had the opportunity to make a very long, uh, about six month trip uh, through Southeast Asia, you know, Thailand, sure. especially Indonesia. Yeah. And that kind of that kind of hooked me. So I went back to the States, graduated from college. It was, uh, you know, people have forgot probably forget about it now, but it was a, you know, a kind of a recession at the time. And, and I had no idea what I wanted to do. Uh, but I knew that I could, you know, make enough money to uh, travel and uh, continue studying Chinese. So coming back to Taiwan was an easy decision. Sure. Uh, and then I spent uh, four or five years here, which was a really exciting time because um, that's when Taiwanese society was really opening up uh, yeah. after martial law. Yeah. You know, martial law didn't didn't end the day it was proclaimed. You know, for a number of years after that, uh, people were very nervous about talking about politics, and older people especially were understandably concerned that martial law might be reimposed and anything they said held against them. Sure. Uh, but in the student districts, I was studying at Shirda, the Mandarin Training Center. Uh -huh. And down there in the Taida, Shirda, you know, student ghetto uh, <laughs> issue, that's, that's, that's where most of the cafes and bars and stuff were in Taipei at that time. There were very few. Uh, and, you know, I met a lot of uh, young, interesting Taiwanese people and also foreigners from all over the world. And it was it was kind of, a, you know, it was kind of a Petri dish for what we see in Taiwan uh, today. Right. Really the, right. The, the, the beginnings of an open uh, society. So that was really fun. And around the same time, uh, I was forced by a friend uh, <laughs> to buy a bicycle and start cycling, uh, which uh, took me out of Taipei uh, into the mountains and down the East Coast and all over the place uh, and really opened my eyes to the beauty of Taiwan and how much of Taiwan that's important is not in Taipei City. Sure. Uh, and so that was kind of the the beginning of my delayed love affair with with Taiwan. It wasn't love at first sight, uh, but it, it it as with many of us, it grew upon me. Right. Uh, and then and then I went back to the states for a few years to graduate school in uh, in in Chinese studies, um, and then decided I didn't want to be an academic and came back around 1997, 1998. 
and I've been here pretty much since. Yeah, uh, you were the person that actually introduced me to cycling. Uh, we had that long trip down the East Coast, and uh, and I, I'm forever in your debt for that. <laughs> well, it was a lot of fun. I've had the pleasure of uh, introducing quite a few people to uh, cycling in Taiwan. It's something that I really enjoy uh, sharing. Uh, yeah. You know, there's all kinds of cycling. You know, there you see people out on these road bikes who are going, you know, a million kilometers an hour and stuff like that. And <laughs> and and you know, I do enjoy a fast, uh, challenging ride, but I'm also very happy to, uh, you know, take it slow and stop for coffees and you know, help somebody. Whoa, whoa, wait! Road. I've ridden with you. I know. Is this a Michael Fahey ride? There's no lunch. <laughs> <laughs> we we try to fit in lunch. <laughs> Yeah. So you had worked on Forward Taiwan on immigration issues. You worked with them or you were, what was, what was that? Well, um, lawyers are supposed to do, uh, pro bono work. Right. And I'm a lawyer in, uh, California, not, not in Taiwan. Uh, and California lawyers have an ethical obligation to do 50 hours of pro bono work, uh, a year. Uh -huh. uh, now you're encouraged to do that for, you know, people who can't afford legal services and that kind of thing, but it can be, it can be anything that's in the public interest. Right. Uh, and I was looking around for something, you know, meaningful to, to devote those hours to. And initially I was, um, thinking about getting involved in some of the issues that, uh, affect migrant workers right. and uh, marriage migrants uh, who have um, you know, many, many challenges. Uh, however, um, I quickly discovered that uh, while they have many challenges, they also have uh, some very articulate and prominent advocates uh, in Taiwanese society already, uh, right. uh, especially some very prominent academics and people like that. Um, and what I, you know, at, at the same time, um, I was having a conversation with a uh, uh, Taiwanese businessman who's fairly prominent named Zhu Ping, who's a bit of a public intellectual as well as a very successful businessman. Mm -hmm. And he was complaining because he had set up uh, this thing called the Red Room, which I believe is still going. It's, it's kind of a artistic In, space. Yeah, I think you brought me over there once. Uh, uh, many years ago. Yeah, quite yeah. possibly. They, they've been going for a number of years and they have all kinds of, you know, drama and, and that's in Xindian, right? They've in had the... it in a few different locations. Oh, I see. Uh, at one point it was at Kongzong. Uh, I think it's moved again since then. Um, oh, okay. But he was meeting a lot of young foreigners uh, who he felt were talented and it would be nice if they could stay in Taiwan. Uh, but all of them kind of faced a similar problem. The only thing they could do in Taiwan was teach English. They couldn't find other kinds of employment uh, because of the work permit rules. Right. And so we had a long lunch talking about that. And then I reflected on my own, you know, long personal experience with the immigration <laughs> system in Taiwan, because I've kind of been here since, since the beginning, right. uh, you know, from, from the early days when it, it basically didn't exist until, you know, the mid nineties when it started getting codified and then yeah. 1999 permanent residents came along and, and, you know, I, I went through all those phases of getting some of the first work permits and then, you know, getting a very early 
permanent residence and so on. And, and, you know, I remembered those struggles. Sure. Uh, and so I thought, and I kind of talked to some other people and I realized that, that, um, at least at that time, which was around 2013, there wasn't really anybody advocating for what we would broadly call foreign professionals. Uh, that, that includes, um, people who do, you know, engineers and people who work in the electronics industry, uh, editors, marketers, uh, teachers of all kinds, including Bushiban teachers, uh, and people in sports and this kind of thing. Um, basically anyone who's not a migrant worker is a, is a foreign professional. Right. And, you know, I kind of asked around and, and looked around and saw that really not very much had been done in this area for more than a decade. And I decided uh, with Zhu Ping's encouragement that, uh, that maybe this was something that I could work on. And so Zhu Ping organized Forward Taiwan and got some prominent Taiwanese business people to endorse it. Uh, and that's how all that started. So what kind of things did you do then with Forward Taiwan? What kinds of policies did you advocate for? What did you look at? That kind of, you know, what were you, what were you doing? Well, it was a, it was a, the first thing we did was we did a whole inventory of of you know all the um, immigration and work permit uh, issues that that we could find, uh, and you know we went through all the regulations uh, oh my God. And, <laughs> and and came up with a list of like twenty or thirty proposals uh, to change them. Uh, so for example uh one issue at the time was that uh there were a very small number but but an increasing number of um children of foreign nationals uh so both parents are foreign nationals mm -hmm. who had grown up in taiwan oh uh, yes and were often more culturally taiwanese than they were uh you know they had more connections to their they, they'd been educated in the Taiwanese school system. They'd gone to college in Taiwan. Uh, but at that time, they pretty much had to leave when they were 20. Right. Uh, and that often meant going back to a country where they had, you know, really no life experience and sometimes no family. And, you know, it was very traumatic uh, for them. Uh, so so that was one issue that we, we got involved in and started advocating for right away. Uh, Another issue was making it easier for Taiwanese uh, foreign graduates of Taiwanese universities to get work permits. Oh, yeah. I remember when that finally came down. Yeah. Right. Uh, and that resulted in a point system that's allowed thousands of uh, foreign graduates to to stay in Taiwan. Um, there were tiny issues like around 2014, 2015, there was one of these sporadic uh roundups of of foreign musicians and performers <laughs> yeah. uh which seems to happen every five to seven years yeah and <laughs> you know we had long talks with the ministry of labor and the Taipei uh department of labor to try to you know come up with some kind of solution to that uh we had some partial uh success with that we we got them to say that you know truly amateur performances uh, you know, are not going to get you um, in trouble with the labor laws. Those are okay. Um, and uh, another issue that we were working on was the, uh, the one of the main barriers for 
one of one of the problems that Taiwan has in attracting foreign professionals is that is that pay in Taiwan oh, is God. low. Yeah. So you know, Taiwan always wants to recruit you know people who have you know ten years of experience and are experts in their fields, but most Taiwanese companies, there are exceptions, uh, but many Taiwanese companies don't pay the kinds of salaries that these people would be making in Europe or or the US. Right. So, you know, we thought that the, the people who are the most likely to work in Taiwan are people who are recent graduates who haven't been, you know, they have they're just starting their careers. They're interested in learning Chinese. Uh, they're willing to sacrifice a couple years of relatively low pay for the experience and that kind of thing. But they were blocked by this rule that says you have to have two years of relevant work experience to get uh. a non-English teaching teaching work permit. Right. Uh, and so, you know, we, 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 we said we should get rid of that, that rule as well. That rule is currently still in place and we're still working on it, although there's some <laughs> hope of it being relaxed. So th there were many, many issues, uh, um, that, that came up, uh, permanent residence for spouses of foreign nationals who'd been here forever. Oh yeah. Um, uh, there was the issue of uh, university faculty members who uh, were not, you know, when they retired, unlike their Taiwanese colleagues, uh, they didn't have an election between getting a monthly pension payment and taking the entire pension as a lump sum, which right. has adverse tax consequences. And if you live longer, you might get more through the, the, the monthly. Uh, but, you know, most of them would, would have liked to have opted for the monthly payment system. So that was another issue. So there were many, many uh, issues like that. And we had, uh, you know, the, the, the strategy was to start with uh, things that could be that were in regulations as opposed to laws. So a regulation is something that the executive branch can usually change without going to the legislative UN which is much more complicated. Right. Uh, and so, you know, we started with with easier things that could be changed by regulations. And, you know, we moved up to uh, things like dual nationality, which is going to require uh, a change to the Nationality Act, for example. That's that's that was the most difficult and the lowest priority because we realized that it was going to be the biggest uh, struggle. I'm, I'm happy to say that that over that time, um, you know, many of the issues that we brought up back in 2014 have been resolved. There's been a lot of progress. Uh, there there are still outstanding issues like the two year work experience rule. And uh, the big one that Forward Taiwan is going to be focused on, you know, uh, you know, COVID has has disrupted things because, you know, legislators and that kind of thing aren't really in the mood to talk about immigration at the moment. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, once things settle down, you know, the really big issue that's remaining is improved access to dual nationality. And we can talk about that a little bit more later. Yeah. So that's that's, you know, in a nutshell, what Forward Taiwan has been doing. And it's still doing it. You guys are still around? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I think that after the um, the what you know, there are kind of there are kind of um, waves of activity. Uh, we got a lot of regulatory changes done, 
And then there was in at the end of 2017, there was something called the Act for the Recruitment and Employment of Foreign Professionals. Yeah. Which, um, uh, among other things, uh, created the Employment Gold Card that uh -huh. has been, you know, a big, a big innovation. And uh, you know, after a law like that is passed. Um, a whole bunch of subsidiary regulations have to be put into place to make the law actually work. So, you know, for the next six months, we were kind of, you know, huddled with government agencies and not doing very much public stuff, but we were, you know, <laughs> meeting with them. And, right. and so that was, that may have, that may have been perceived as a bit of a lull. Uh, and then the government came up with uh, something called the new Economic Immigration Act, which would have um, really been kind of a radical step forward. And we had lots of discussions with them while they were drafting that. And some of our ideas were adopted and some of them weren't. Uh, and then, uh, you know, the election happened and COVID-19 happened. And, uh, you know, there, we, we haven't had as much access uh, recently, but so we're currently kind of in the stage of, of um, uh, you know, trying to come develop a strategy, an effective strategy for uh, advocating for better access to dual nationality. That's going to be really difficult. Uh, so yes. some thought and planning has to go into that. If listeners want to get involved in this, what do what should they do? Is I mean, do you need people? Do you need resources? What kind of what kind of things can people what can people like me do, for example? Well, I think that um, one idea uh, that that we've had is that um, uh, we might we're, we're seriously considering setting up a uh, you know a registered association, an NGO, which would be a uh, an NGO, you know, something like you know, permanent residents of Taiwan association. Right. And trying to get, uh, you know, there are now, this is, this is news, uh, just at the end of August, the number of permanent residents hit 20,000. I mean, that's from all foreign countries. From all foreign countries. 20,000 of us. There are 20,000 of us now. So it's, that number has doubled in the last decade uh, and has been increasing by, you know, 2,000, 2,500 a year in the last several years. So it's going to keep growing. In a few years, there's going to be 30,000 of us. Uh, and permanent residents, I think, are the ideal candidates, uh, possibly after a period of permanent residence, maybe seven years, five years, 10 years, three years, hopefully, yeah. where, where they would be able to become <laughs> uh, dual nationals, uh, you know, kind of, you know, more or less automatically if they haven't done anything wrong and paid their taxes and that kind of thing. So uh, I think it might be very effective to have uh, an association of permanent residents uh, whose first objective would be to advocate for dual nationality for permanent residents. Uh, so if we get that off the ground and, and, and get that registered, uh, something you could do would be to join it uh, and then, uh, we were thinking about, uh, you know, some very polite and of course, you know, lawfully registered, 
you know, protests, uh, you know, or gatherings anyway, in front of the legislative UM, uh, hopefully with people bringing their kids and, you know, showing that we're integrally part of Taiwanese right, society. Right. And I think it would get a lot of media attention. For uh, sure. And so even if just a few hundred people showed up, I think it would be, yep. it, it would even be. Even a few score. We'd, even all, a few we'd score. all be Chinese speakers and we'd have our kids there. Hey, here's my son. He was in the army. Yeah, I, how, I've how lived here I in Taiwan this long and I've been paying taxes all yep. this time. And, yep. and uh, you know, there's, there's uh, you know, a million or more Taiwanese uh, who have dual citizenship in other countries that, that you know, just makes Taiwan stronger. Uh, and so why can't we be included in this? Um, yeah. so, so I think that that would be, uh, that, that would be in a little bit of, a little bit of financial support. Uh, you know, we probably have, you know, some minor dues of a few hundred NT a year or something like that. Uh, I think that would be the channel that we're going to try to get people, uh, involved in. That would be awesome. I would certainly join that yep. and support it. You'd be very welcome. And we're, we're of course, hoping that, you know, because the, the, the permanent residents are, are, you know, a very diverse group of people. I mean, a lot of them are in the Taipei area, but they're all over the island. Yeah. There's a lot of Japanese permanent residents, oh, yeah, Korean right. permanent right. residents, Malaysian permanent residents, you know. So it's going to be, it's going to have to be something that, you know, cuts across the you know, sometimes insular little communities of, of, of foreigners in Taiwan sure. become something broader. Be a good way to meet people too. Yeah, I think it'd be a good way to bring people together. Yeah, yeah. So you were somehow, you just mentioned the immigration gold card. What is this? What is this program that? Okay, that, that's the employment gold card. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, and that's something uh, very innovative uh, that was the National Development Council's idea. It wasn't our idea. Uh, they, wow. they modeled it on similar programs in uh, New Zealand uh -huh. and Singapore. Uh -huh. And what it is, um, is that you, uh, there are eight different areas, um, economics, which kind of means general business. There's, uh, finance, culture, sports, uh, science and technology, you know, so there are these eight different areas that you can apply in. And if you meet their qualifications and have the documents that they want, <laughs> which is the key point, uh, then you get this uh, card, which is basically an AR, looks like an ARC, except that it combines a work permit, an ARC, uh, a visa to come to Taiwan if you're not in Taiwan already and a re-entry per permit. So it's a four in one card and everyone applies for three years and everyone gets three years. The number one attraction of it for people is its flexibility because unlike an ordinary work permit, it's not tied to your employer. It's yours personally. So, in that sense, it's very similar to the work permits that permanent residents uh, and spouses of Taiwanese citizens have. You can use that gold card to do any, basically any kind of professional work. You could work for an employer in the US, you could work for an employer in Taiwan, you could do freelance projects, uh, you could take six months off and study Chinese and then start your own company. So that flexibility, not being tied to an employer uh, and having three years to, 
you know, finds yourself in Taiwan is, you know, makes it very attractive to, to people. Uh, yeah, I know several people who've gotten it who are quite happy with it. Yes, and it's attracted a really, they, they've had a number of events bringing people who've, uh, and it's a really diverse group. Everybody from uh, people who are running, you know, high-end coffee import businesses from, from Central America to Finnish dancers to uh, German piano players, uh, pianists, uh, <laughs> you know, of course, lots of people who are, you know, coders and tech people and that kind of thing. Uh, one one thing I should mention uh, just very quickly is there's often a lot of confusion among the tech people about what category they should apply in. Uh, and it is confusing because naturally they see a field called technology, which is monitored by the Ministry of Science and Technology, and they all apply in that category. Uh, but actually, they most of them, if you're if what you primarily do is write code, you should actually be applying in the economics category because the technology category is really for people who do research and development so if you have patents if you're if you've developed some kind of you know framework that's open source framework that's used by millions of people all over the world then yes you go apply under science and technology but if you're somebody who's been working for, you know, you have a degree in computer science and you've been working as a coder in San Francisco for five years, uh, you should be applying in economics. Ah, I think that was the exact problem one of my friends had. A lot of people have had that problem. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and the easiest way to um, apply for it is based on salary. So if you had a salary that's the equivalent of 160,000 NT a month, that's about 5,500 US dollars these days, uh, at any time in the last three years, uh, you can apply based on the salary. Uh, and if you're an American, you would produce your W-2 form, uh, which shows how much your employer reported in taxation and salary. It's got to be salary and wages though. Uh, so some entrepreneurs who don't make salary haven't been able to get it. That's kind of an oversight yeah. in the whole, yeah. the whole system. So there, there are some quirks to it, but, uh, but you know, a thousand people have gotten it as of the end of last month. Uh, and they're really having an impact, I think, uh, especially on the startup scene because there's a lot more talent uh, available here in Taiwan. Yeah, and it, it's the kind of thing that, uh, like right now, Cambodia is a popular destination for people who code. Mm -hmm. Right. It's cheap to live in. And that's the kind of that's the kind of people that Taiwan could easily appeal to with a card like this, because Taiwan is such a nice place to live. Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, I think that, you know, obviously the, the cost of living in Cambodia is lower than Taiwan. Uh, but uh, I think maybe the Internet is faster and more reliable. And um, <laughs> I think it's fair to say that Taiwan is a little bit safer than Cambodia. Uh, uh, and better well. healthcare. <laughs> uh, and and another, uh, another real advantage of Taiwan uh, is, is, is that, um, you know, it's only an 11 hour, you know, in non-COVID times, it's only an 11 hour flight to San Francisco. Right. Uh, so... You know, I mean, that's not a short flight, but it's it's different than 18 hours. Uh, you can you can go back to to the Silicon Valley regularly. Uh, and for some reason, Taiwan seems to really uh, attract people from 
San Francisco and the Silicon Bay area who are who are fed up with the really high cost of living there and are looking for something different but don't want to cut off their ties entirely. Right. Uh, another cohort that uh, is very interested in living in Taipei are you know, long-term expats and business people in China uh, because there's a widespread perception that Taiwan, that China is becoming, you know, a less friendly place and a less safe place to live. Uh, and then there are environmental cons considerations like pollution and that kind of thing. And so we're seeing people who are, maybe they're continuing to work in China, especially in Shanghai. Right. Uh, because again, in normal times, you know, it's a very short flight to Shanghai. You could work there during the week and come back to Taipei, uh, you know, with your family on the weekends. Um, so those are two, I think, um, you know, real selling points along with the national healthcare system that Taiwan has over, you know, some of the other com countries in Southeast Asia. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, of course, uh, there's been a dramatic uptick in interest since the travel restrictions came in in March. <laughs> uh, you know, we always knew that there were quite a few people, uh, who were, you know, using the visa free entry, uh, to, come in and out of Taiwan every three months and we're working here as digital nomads or uh, sometimes we're retired here or yeah. doing different things. Yeah. And then when the travel restrictions hit and people couldn't come and go, uh, there was a real wave of people who were trying to regular, regularize their status. And there was a huge uptick in the number of employment. I mean, before March, there were maybe 500 gold card holders. Uh, and now there are a thousand, so it doubled, you know, it was, took two years to get to 500 and then it doubled in four months. Uh, <laughs> I think the, most of the, the, the upsurge has kind of died down now. Uh -huh. So there was a situation where it was taking six, eight, nine weeks to get approval. Uh, but it's now back down to the normal three or four weeks. So now is, if you haven't applied already and you're interested, uh, now is a good time to apply. Did you hear that, listeners? <laughs> so you had, uh, you know, I, you've had so much experience. You had the, you were, ed you were educated in California, right? That's where you did your legal, uh, that's where you went to law school, right? Right, right. And right, you, got, right. you passed California bar, but then you've also been involved with the law here for so long. How do you see the two legal systems? What are the differences? What are the interesting differences anyway? Well, um, of course, the legal system in California is part of what we call the, the Anglo-American legal system uh, or the common law system. Yeah. And uh, which is almost exclusively used in English speaking countries, uh, in particular countries that uh, were colonies of England at one time, including the United States. <laughs> Um, and, uh, most of the rest of the world uses what's called the civil law system, which is, uh, or sometimes they call it the continental legal system, which is, you know, the legal system that was developed out of, uh, you know, it was kind of based on Roman and Byzantine law and then was, you know, majorly updated first by the Napoleonic codes in the early 19th century and then 
uh, really reached its modern form in the in the German legal codes in the in the mid 19th century. And those are pretty much the model for the rest of the world. Almost no country in the world has 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 looked at the American or the English system and said, we're going to adopt that. Uh, <laughs> Why not? What's wrong with us? <laughs> um, well, there's nothing really wrong with us. It's just that uh, it's just a very different system because, um, you know, in at least in theory, in the civil law countries, all of the laws are written down in codes uh -huh. where anybody can look up what the law is, which makes a lot of sense if right. you think about it. Right. Whereas in the uh, Anglo-American system, uh, there are certainly many, many laws that are, you know, written down, uh, but a lot of law is what they call judge-made law. It's based on uh, precedent. Right. So there's no law saying that, you know, uh, a woman has a right to an abortion. That law is, is you know, encapsulated in a court decision, a Supreme Court decision. So the courts can make the law where the legislators have not made law. They can fill in the gaps. Uh, and that's very difficult to adapt because it's very specific to each country. Uh, so, ah, so, so right. for example, uh, there's all kinds of laws about domestic animals. Like, you know, if, if, if it's a domestic animal and you own it and it goes and digs up somebody else's crops, you're liable. Uh, but if you ha you know, if it's a wild animal that just happens to live on your land and it goes up and digs up somebody's crops, then you're not liable. So this distinction between domestic and, 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 and wild animal is very important. Well, you know, in the United States, you know, domestic animals would probably include, you know, your, your, your dog, your milk cow, this kind of thing. But in Burma, uh, <laughs> the common law has developed to include elephants. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so it's highly particularized in each country. So it's very hard for somebody to adapt it, uh, you know, just kind of lock, stock and barrel, uh, unless they've been, it's been evolving there for hundreds of years. So countries that are, that are coming up with new legal systems like Japan in the 1870s or, or China in the, in the 1930s have invariably ch chosen the civil law. I see. Hang. Okay. Why don't we take a short break here? So moving on from those elephants in Burma that have been encoded <laughs> in law, <laughs> I think we were we had just talked about just during the break we discussed the debate about the jury system here, the incorporating the U.S. jury system into the local legal system. How is that going to work? What's going on with that? Well, they're not going to incorporate the jury system. Uh, they're going to uh, the 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 government has gone with um, something that they call citizen judges, which is a system that's used in Japan in serious criminal cases. And you have um, you know in murder and a few other cases, I think with you know a potential sentence of seven years or more. Uh, you have three professional judges and uh, four uh, lay judges who sit together and hear the case. Uh, and the, uh, but the lay judges can't outvote 
the professional judges. I think at least two of the professional judges have to join in their uh, decision. And this is supposed to make, um, it's supposed to build trust in the system and uh, um, How are the lay judges chosen? They're going to be chosen at random, sort of like uh, the way jury members are chosen from the public. Is the defense going to have any right to say, I don't like this lay judge? He's no. prejudiced against no. Aborigines or he's these no. whatever? Uh, at least as well. The, the detailed regulations aren't out, but as, that's called voyeur deer, and that's the system of challenging jurors in a jury right, system. In the, in the jury system. Uh, it's a very important part of the jury system. Uh, and as far as we know, they're not going to, to, to have that. Wow. No. Uh, the movement to introduce juries in Taiwan was spearheaded by uh, defense lawyers. Uh, it was uh, uh, part, I mean, the cynic, cynics might say that the reason they wanted is because the, you know, it, once, you're, once you're indicted, uh, you know, once you're prosecuted for the prosecutor makes a decision to indict you for a criminal matter, the conviction rates are very, very high. They're, they're well over 80%. Uh, they're not 98% like they are in Japan, but they're very, very <laughs> high. Uh, except in a few areas like insider trading where they're more like 50-50. Um, uh -huh. And I think that, uh, um, you know, some people think that the defense lawyers were hoping to do that because, you know, a, a expert defense lawyer can appeal to the emotions of jurors and stuff who are not trained, you know, professional decision makers. And they, you know, if you, especially if you have to have a unanimous decision, you know, all you got to do is get one person to uh, disagree with the verdict and you could get your client off. But um, I, I, I've been to quite a few of the, I was very curious about this and I've been to quite a few of their meetings. And I can say that these people, uh, I think, truly believe that, uh, that the jury system is uh, better uh, in determining the facts of the case, which is, of course, what juries do in the United States. They don't decide what law is applied. They just decide, you know, did, did so-and-so, you know, stab that person on, on, you know, the night of the 25th or whatever. Right. Uh, so they decide, or they decide very important facts like, was this person so insane at the time they committed their crime that they could not distinguish right from wrong? That's not a decision a judge makes in the United States. It's a, it's a decision that the jury makes. Um, but in Taiwan, the judge makes that decision. In, the, in Taiwan, the judge makes that decision. Uh, which actually puts a lot of pressure on judges because, right. uh, you know, we've had several recent very high profile cases where the insanity defense was was successfully invoked and was was it's it's very unpopular everywhere. Yeah. Uh, several of my students in the high school are writing essays against it. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 very unpopular and it, it, it's very rare that it's successful in the U.S. But but from the judge's point of view, you know, that's the decision that the jury made not based on their common sense and their common experience. Right. It's not a, a factual decision that the judge has to make. And a lot of the times, the, the Taiwanese public's criticism of judges has to do with factual determinations that they make. And so if we had a jury system, then the juries would be making those decisions and then the judges would be, then be applying the, the law. Right. Um, but uh, I have my 
uh, personal doubts about whether or not this would work that <laughs> successfully. Uh, what you would be doing is grafting on, you know, a very alien part of the Anglo-American legal system onto the civil law yeah. system. Yeah. Uh, and there are all kinds of other rules about evidence uh, that um, make a jury system work in the United States. Uh, now, many critics say they're too complicated, but very often, you know, there's a fight between the lawyers about what kind of evidence the jurors can see. For example, uh, if there was an illegal search and they found contraband in somebody's house, then the defense lawyer is gonna say, hey, that was a search without a warrant. And then the jury never hears about the contraband that was found in that house. So their decision about the facts is made without knowing that that guy had 10 kilos of heroin in his house, <laughs> which, which you know, can, can color somebody's decision. Right. Now in Taiwan, because the judges are professional decision makers who hear these cases all the time and are trained not to be swayed by emotion or that kind of thing. And they're, they're very good. I, I mean, they're, they're much more capable of, of doing that than, than ordinary people are. If there's an illegal search and they found contraband, the judge hears that evidence along with all the other evidence. Now, the judge increasingly will say that, okay, I know about that evidence, but because it was obtained unlawfully, I'm not going to consider it my decision. I'm just going to you know, hive it off and it's not going to appear in the judgment, but he still knows about it. Yeah. So the, in, in the US, the judge plays this really important job as a gatekeeper for what kind of evidence, like, you know, is it relevant that the person had um, previous criminal convictions? Sometimes it is, like fraud, if the current case is bank fraud, but sometimes it isn't, you know. Uh, you know, it's not always comes in that, you know, the, the fact that if somebody committed murder before and now they're on charge for murder again, if the jurors know that he committed murder before, they're going to be so influenced by that knowledge that they're just going to say, oh, well, he did it before, so he definitely did it this time. So, right. so, so, right. so that might be uh, excluded. Taiwan has no rules of evidence like that. It would, it would require a massive overhaul of the system, and I don't think they're ready for that. Uh, <laughs> and I don't think they would know how to do it. There's a, there's a previous example from about 20 years ago, uh, cross-examination, where the lawyers from both sides ask questions of a witness is called the crucible of truth in the American legal system. And it was brought to the Taiwanese legal system with much fanfare 20 years ago. And it is now universally considered to have been a total failure. Uh, the lawyers don't know how to cross-examine. It's not a crucible of truth. It's just a formality at the end of the case. The judges don't want to hear it. Uh, <laughs> and so we already have another example of something that was considered very important in the U.S. legal system that was going to revolutionize the Taiwanese one that failed to do it. <laughs> so uh, I'm open to the idea of juries in the Taiwanese system, but I have reservations about how well it would actually work. It's, it's really kind of alien to this kind of legal system. Oh. Well, I think it's been a, a fascinating sitting here listening to you today and useful. Hey guys, when this NGO for permanent residence is set up, hope to see you all joining it. And maybe someday we'll all be standing in front of the legislative event. Bring your kids. <laughs> yeah, bring your kids. All right. Well, thanks, Mike. It's really been a pleasure. Great. Nice talking to you always, Michael. <laughs>
This has been brought to you by the Taiwan Report. For more content like this, become our patron at report.tw. 